Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Our speaker this evening is the Director of Academic Research and President of the Pontifical Studies Foundation, which supports the work of the Eucharist Project. Dr. Kenneth J. Howell taught in higher education for almost 30 years. He was a Presbyterian minister for 18 years. During his ministry and teaching, Dr. Howell's own reading on the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist started him on a six-year journey that eventually led him to Catholicism. On June 1, 1996, Dr. Howell was confirmed and received into the Catholic Church at St. Charles Borromeo Parish in Bloomington, Indiana. In 2000, he received the Pro Ecclesia et Pontifice Award from St. John Paul II in recognition of his service to the church. Dr. Howell has been married to Sharon Canfield for 43 years, and they have three children and nine grandchildren. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Kenneth Howell. Thank you, Andy, for the very fine introduction and the joy that I feel tonight in being with you again. I can't remember how long ago it was I was here when I talked about St. Justin Martyr, but I do remember distinctly going away with a feeling that I'm among friends. So I'm so glad to be with you again tonight. I do want to thank uh, the Institute of Catholic Culture, about which I am out of this world enthusiastic about what they're doing what you're doing as supporters, as board members, as just people that are associated with uh, the Institute. I'd like to thank especially Father Hezekiah Carnazzo for his vision and determination to continue this and to uh, give me the privilege of being a part of the Institute of Catholic Culture. And especially to Andrew Hickman tonight for his uh, professionalism and arrangements and making everything uh, fall together. Tonight, I have a big topic, but I'll try to do it as much just as I can in the time allotted to me. The topic tonight is division and development, the Council of Chalcedon and the Catholic Communion. The title and the topic were assigned to me by Father Carnazzo. I think there must be something behind that. <laughs> but nevertheless, I am actually embraced it with enthusiasm. Because when the term Catholic communion comes into play, it turns out that this is very apropos for the discussion this evening. You see, the words Catholic and associated words like Orthodox and Christian are words that have been have changed meaning over time, or maybe I should say, have been re reconfigured over time. 
nobody in the first two centuries of the church would have called themselves a Catholic. They called themselves simply Christian. And when we said, what church, or what is the church, the primary descriptor of the church was the word Catholicos, or Catholic. When you described what the church believed, the word was orthodox. And so the term Catholic was only applied to the church, as it is as early as St. Ignatius of Antioch. The message or the, the, the topic tonight is a question of what constitutes that Catholic communion and how central is the person of Christ to that Catholic communion. Because the topic that we're talking about tonight is one, I dare say, very few American Catholic Christians know anything about. I must confess myself, beyond knowing some very basic facts, I've had to educate myself in this regard. But tonight we're going to talk about the relationship between the classic Western church, the Catholic church, the Orthodox churches, and then those six churches, which are collectively today called the Oriental Orthodox churches. Churches that are not in communion with either Rome or any orthodox jurisdiction uh, that is, let's say, a major one, like Greek or Antiochian or Russian. Tonight, because of Father Canazzo's suggestion, I'm going to focus on one of those communions, the Coptic Orthodox Church of Egypt, which is the heir today of the ancient see of Alexandria. In this process, I think we're going to see some very painful moments, but in the end, a message of hope. Because this is a message where division gives way to development, and development gives way to unity. We're going to have to take three steps tonight together, and that's actually on the outline, beginning the outline that I've given you. In order to understand this story adequately, we need to return to the councils of Ephesus and Chalcedon. The councils of Ephesus and Chalcedon form two sides of one coin in which the church defined forever who Jesus Christ is as the theandric reality, the God-man manifesting the Father among us. But it was that last, that fourth council of Chalcedon that became the stumbling block for the Coptic church. And we'll see why. So that's our second task tonight. Step two is to understand something of these non-Chalcedonian churches, and particularly the Coptic church. But then thirdly tonight, we begin to see hope emerging when we understand what happened in the late 20th century after 1,500 years of division. Not 500, like the Protestant Reformation, 1,500. And because it, it was in the late 20th century that there was massive efforts, or rather I should say concerted efforts, to understand one another 
in a way they never had before. My hope tonight is for you to understand how deep is the longing for unity in genuine Christian hearts. Unity is not only a command of our Lord in Scripture, but I believe that through the gift of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of grace that are given to us beginning in our baptism, God places within our souls a deep desire for true Christian unity. But this is needed because unity is so difficult to achieve. And the history of the church is living proof of how difficult it is to have true unity in Christ. Just this morning in Mass, my ears perked up again as I prayed along with the priest, remember your church, O Lord, and bring her to the fullness of charity. Charity, or love, divine love, is that which perfects us as individuals and perfects the church as a whole. Love leads to unity, and unity leads to greater love. So there is a call to us in Scripture and in the history of the church to overcome those barriers and those walls which stand between Christians for all those that are called themselves disciples of Jesus Christ. I think there are many problems or many ways to look at this problem, but I will just point out two tonight. One is the problem that resides in the heart of every one of us, and it is human lethargy. Indifference and lethargy to what God wants. And yet what we will see tonight is how those in whom this desire for unity reside, that those people have after so many centuries found a way to understand and to come together and to realize that their faith is the same faith. I have been a Catholic now for 22 years. I was just reflecting the other day as I was praying my rosary in bed and half falling asleep. Suddenly the thought came upon me, God, thank you so much for bringing me into the Catholic Church. Or as the way I put it was, for making me a Catholic. This was a gift of grace I never anticipated in my life. But to be a part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church is a gift beyond description. And yet isn't it true that whether we call ourselves Catholic or Orthodox or Lutheran or Presbyterian, as I did, or Methodist or whatever, that we are all tempted to live within the narrow bounds of what we know and never perhaps even stretch out to see that there is a world beyond our experience. Human lethargy is a definite barrier to unity and to the fullness of the faith. And sometimes this lethargy is reinforced by the misunderstandings that we carry about with one another. One of the great gifts of my life was that I've had the opportunity 
to study numerous languages. One of the things when you're learning a language you have to realize is that you have to put away your own language, for a while anyway. You have to learn to listen. You have to learn to act in a way that is consistent with that culture. And in that process, you begin to feel a unity with the people that you're now speaking with in their native language. But that process requires to get rid of prejudice and misunderstandings. That prejudice and those misunderstandings exist between Christians, between Orthodox Christians and Catholic Christians, between Protestant Christians and Orthodox Christians, and between especially these churches that we call the Oriental Orthodox churches. But tonight, in the end, the message is a message of encouragement and hope. Because this is living evidence that the unity of all Christians is never beyond hope. The agreements and understandings that have been reached in the late 20th century between the churches of Chalcedonian Orthodoxy, the Roman Catholic and the Orthodox churches, and on the other hand, the non-Chalcedonian churches, is clear evidence that mutual understanding is always possible. And I can state tonight without equivocation that it is God's will for all Christians to be united in one spirit, one body, and in one love, the love of our Lord Jesus Christ for his bride of the church, that church for which he died and rose again to bring it to final union with God. But perhaps you're thinking, oh, you're speaking in platitudes and generalities and exhortations today. What about the concrete reality that Christians are divided and have been divided for centuries? Well, I'd like to come down to the very concrete level of everyday human life and understand what the real nature of the difference and problem is. Both the Catholic Church, as well as the Orthodox Churches, and I'll kind of all lump those together tonight, and the Coptic Church of Egypt, recognize that there have been serious differences between these two traditions. Because that tradition has to do with Christology. It has to do with the person and work of Jesus Christ. And what could be a more important question than the question that our Lord Jesus asked his apostles on the plains of Caesarea Philippi, who do you say that I am? It might seem like a simple answer when Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. But it took five centuries for the church to figure out what that really meant. That question that question, who do you say that I am, reverberates down to our very day and in each truly Christian heart. But in order to understand this story, we first need to take step one. We need to understand the councils of Ephesus in 431 and Chalcedon in 451. And I think when we understand this, you will see 
hopefully, not only the uniqueness of Christianity, but the very power of Christianity. But in order to understand those councils, <clears throat> the third and fourth councils of the church, we need to go back to the very first one, in the Council of Nicaea in 325, where we have that beautiful creed that we profess every Sunday, that the eternal Son of God was God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. The phrase consubstantial, and by the way, I'm glad they brought that term back into the translation, and was it 2011 or so, translates the Greek word homoousion to patri, one in being, one substance, one nature with the Father. Because it was from that ancient, that ancient sea of Alexandria that a heretical priest began to preach there was a time when the word was not. Arius, as he brought division and furor into the church, caused 318 bishops to gather in the city of Nicaea to determine what would be the true and orthodox faith. But the Council of Nicaea and its creed did not by any means settle controversy. Almost no ecumenical council has ever settled all controversy. Look at what happened after the Second Vatican Council. It's the same way, you see. Well, that happened after the first ecumenical council. But in, that, in, those, in those decades, between the first and second council, which happened in 381, great luminaries of the church like Basil the Great, Gregory of Nyssa, Hilary of Poitiers, they explicated very clearly the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity, which affirmed that the eternal Son of God was not of a like nature, but the same nature as the Father. But again, Alexandria and Egypt plays into the story. Because it was their bishop, their patriarch, which in fact became the greatest champion of the doctrine of the Trinity. In St. Athanasius's On the Incarnation of the Word, we have perhaps the fullest and most theologically rich explanation of the doctrine of the Trinity that came from the hands of the Church Fathers. Now it's important to remember that all the churches that we're talking about tonight, all of the churches, affirm the truths stated by the councils of Nicaea and then the Council of Constantinople, which was kind of a completion of Nicaea. And it seemed, for a while, as if the church was at peace. Apart from a few skirmishes that we know about from St. Augustine. But in fact, it was not going to be long before another heretic arose again. It seems every generation has its heretics. In 428, Nestorius was elevated and installed as the patriarch of Constantinople. By this time, the city of Constantinople, or the New Rome, was almost 100 years old because it had been founded by the Emperor Constantine 
and declared to be his new great achievement. Constantinople had now joined the four other major patriarchs of the ancient church, or patriarchates, as the fifth and eventually perhaps the most important in the East. No sooner had Nestorius been installed as the bishop or archbishop of Constantinople than he began to teach that the words that he was hearing out of the mouths of the faithful were improper and even heretical. You see, Nestorius began to say that it was not right to call Mary the Theotokos, the mother of God. By this time, Christians had, begin using, had begun using this term for Mary, the Theotokos, the God-bearer, widely and extensively in their prayers and their speech. And Nestorius was troubled by this. He said that Mary should not be called the Theotokos, but the Christotokos, the Christ-bearer, not the God-bearer. And why? For a reason I think you'll agree with. You see, Nestorius said that it's impossible for a creature to give birth to God, even one as great as Mary. And so he considered it to be heretical to say that Mary was the mother of God. Well, that seemed plausible. But there was also something wrong with it. Because if you followed out the implications of what Nestorius was saying, you came to other conclusions that were definitely heretical. If that little baby inside the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary was not God, but only man, then there's only two ways that Jesus Christ could have become divine, could have become the Son of God, which, by the way, Nestorius believed. It's just that he wasn't in the womb of Mary. You see, if Nestorius were right, that that baby in Mary's womb were only a man, then it would be true that either God had to adopt him as his special son or infuse him with such grace that he would elevate him to be divine. Neither of these was acceptable. The first had been condemned by the church when Paul of Samosata began to teach adoptionism. And the second would make Jesus Christ no different than the great saints. So you see, the only conclusion that the church could arrive at was that that baby in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary had to be God. Or we have no Savior at all. Two names that you might want to follow up, though I can see by time that I don't have time to go into them, are St. Cyril of Alexandria, who was the greatest defender of Mary as the Theotokos, and the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, Leo I. <clears throat> In short, the Council of Ephesus said that Mary is indeed the Theotokos, the Mother of God. And this meant that he was fully God and fully man. She gave him the gift of her humanity and our humanity. But it raised the question, what is the proper relationship between 
Christ's divinity and Christ's humanity. Let me use a human analogy. Most of us never think much about the relationship between our emotions, our intellects, our behavior, and so forth. We just kind of go through life. And the more virtuous a person is, the more naturally these things work in harmony. But what if you were a person in whom your intellect and your emotions and your behavior was all out of whack and you never could get them together in any kind of integrated whole? This is what schizophrenia is. And a person who's schizophrenic is not, they cannot control themselves. They simply don't have any kind of integration in themselves. What kind of relationship would there be between Jesus' divinity and Jesus' humanity? The Catholic faith, the Christian faith, affirms without question that Jesus Christ is absolutely the most and the only unique being on the face of the earth. In that walking on earth as man, he was also fully God. This was extremely difficult for people to understand. And so there arose, as I've indicated on my outline, three heresies that the church rejected. The first was Nestorius. Because Nestorius, in a sense, said, yes, Jesus is human and he is divine, but it's almost like he has a parallel lives going on within him. Because Nestorius didn't try to connect the divinity and the humanity in any shape or way. And so it became difficult to understand how Jesus Christ could be a person, given that he was divine and human. But then even earlier, there was the second heresy I've listed, Apollinarianism. Apollinarius of Laodicea, in trying to figure out this relationship, said, oh, I've got the, I've got it. You see, the Holy, the Logos, the God, the eternal Son of God, descended into the man Jesus, and what is normally our rational soul, our ability to think, the Logos took the place of that in Jesus. The problem is that if that is true, then Jesus is not fully a man. Because to be a human being means that you have a rational soul, that you can think, you can reason. The other, the third, was suggested by Eutychus, the archmandrite or abbot of a monastery in Constantinople. Eutychus said that what happened in the incarnation was that there was a fusion, an amalgamation between the Son of God and man. So that they ended up being one being as kind of a mixture of divinity and humanity. It was kind of the opposite error of Nestorius. All three of these heresies were rejected by the church. And they came together in 451 in the Council of Chalcedon to come to a conclusion that was, I would say, ingenious. If you look on the outline that I've given you, I believe it's there, I've actually given you quotes 
from the Council of Chalcedon. In short, what the Council of Chalcedon said was that Jesus Christ was two natures in one person, or what we in modern theology call the hypostatic union, because hypostasis was used as a synonym of person by the council. This is a quotation from the council. Jesus Christ consisted in two natures, not mingle or confused, so they used the Greek word asunkotos, and this was against Apollinarius and Eutychus. Nor without change, well, that was against Apollinarius, who believed that the divine and the human were changed in the process. Nor without division and separation, that was against Nestorius. Long story short, the council said that each distinct nature, human and divine, were preserved as they came together in one person and one hypostasis. This meant, in effect, that the God-man that we worship is not some mixture or amalgamation of divinity and humanity. Jesus Christ is not partially human and partially divine. This is what the Greeks tended to think about their gods. You know, Zeus would come down or one of the gods would come down. He'd become less of a god as he became more of a man. And you see, the church was trying to walk a thin line between all of those false ideas. So Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. And yet, contrary to Nestorius, Jesus was not a schizophrenic. He was not sometimes divine and sometimes human. He was fully human and fully divine through the union of his person. And through his personhood, he then united so that there was a communication between divinity and humanity. To put this in more personal and concrete terms, let me ask you to imagine with me what we would do if Jesus Christ appeared in this room right now. You would see a man with flesh and blood standing before you. What would you do? I know what I would do. I would prostrate myself on the ground and worship him as God. That is the uniqueness of Christianity. You don't have to be a Christian to know the truth of what I'm going to say. If you study the religions of the world, be it Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, whatever you study, or the animistic religions of aboriginal peoples, you can see very clearly there's no other religion in the world and that has ever been in history that said that God fully God became fully man, who could be both loved as a man and worshipped as God. Christianity is absolutely unique. And not only in its uniqueness of its doctrine, but in the reality of which the words speak. Jesus Christ will be here someday. He will stand in our midst. And then what will we do? Christianity is absolutely unique.
But Christianity and Christ himself is also incredibly powerful because that same God-man reaches out to us and says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm meek and lowly of heart. That same Jesus said, come unto me. And he, as he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And then perhaps most incredible of all, he says, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will have eternal life. This is the transforming message of our faith. And this is the message that our world desperately needs to hear. Let's take step number two tonight. To understand the Oriental Orthodox churches, the non-Chalcedonian churches, but particularly the Coptic Orthodox Church. Soon after the Council of Chalcedon, which these six churches, including the Coptic Church, rejected as an adequate statement of the relationship between Christ's divinity and Christ's humanity, these churches broke away in schism from the rest of the church. Of course, like all churches, they would say, well, no, it wasn't us who was our schismatics, it's you that are the schismatics. But however you cast aspersions, there was a serious division that took place in the fifth century. And ever since then, people in the Roman Catholic Church and in the Orthodox churches have viewed these six churches as monophysite. And whenever people talk about monophysitism, they're always referring to these churches, including the church of the ancient kingdom of Armenia. Monophysite means one and only one nature. And so by rejecting the Council of Chalcedon, the Catholic and Orthodox churches see the Coptic church and others like it uh, as rejecting the two natures of Christ. The Coptic church has long contended that the term monophysite is both inaccurate and even offensive. Because they say that what you say we believe, we don't believe. You've probably had that happen before. People telling you what you believe, but you don't really believe it. Well, that's, that's the misunderstanding that's been taking place for 1,500 years. They reject the term monophysite and prefer the term miaphysite. Mia is the Greek word, the feminine form of the Greek word that means one. So they do believe that there's one nature, not two natures. But they believe that it's the one nature that was the union of humanity and divinity in the nature of the Son of God. In other words, the Miaphysites are not monophysites. They don't believe in one and only one nature, but they believe 
that it's best to speak of Jesus Christ as having one nature. Why do they do this? As an example, I'm going to take one of the longest reigning popes of the, of the Coptic Church. His name was Pope Shenouda III. He died, I think, in 2012. But since 1971, he was the patriarch of the Coptic Church. There's an article online which you can download. It's called The Nature of Christ by Pope Shenouda. Here's what he says in the article. He affirms, as did the entire Coptic Church, he affirms that the Nicene Creed is settled faith for both the Catholic, the Orthodox, and the Coptic Church. He affirms that the Council of Ephesus, which called Mary the mother of God, the Theotokos, is settled faith. They believe, he believes, that they, the Coptic Church, are following the teachings of St. Athanasius, who was his predecessor in the 4th century B.C. They also believe that Athanasius in some way resolved the issues that are facing the church today, perhaps something that others might disagree with. But finally, they claim to follow the teachings of St. Cyril of Alexandria, who was a major figure at the Council of Ephesus in the defense of Mary as the mother of God. On the quotation that you have, I believe, on your outline, I've given you a quotation from Pope Shenouda. Here's how he clarifies what they mean by miaphysite theology. The expression one nature does not indicate the divine nature alone, nor the human nature alone. It indicates the unity of both natures in one nature, which is the nature of the incarnate logos. So, the Council of Chalcedon said that the two natures of Christ are joined together in one person, and the Miaphysites say that the two natures were joined together in one nature, a nature unique to the Son of God. They further say that their great predecessor, St. Cyril of Alexandria, who was, by the way, without a doubt, one of the greatest theologians in the history of the church, St. Cyril of Alexandria said that it was improper to speak of two natures after the union of humanity and divinity in Christ. But if there was a union of the divine and the human in Jesus, then why do they object to the Chalcedon formulation, two natures in one person? They believe that this implies a division or separation of this divine and human. At one point, Pope Shenouda spoke in this document of the tone of separation that is in the Council of Chalcedon, as if Christ is, again, I quote, two persons. You see, Pope Shenouda equated the statement of Chalcedon with the position of Nestorius which the Chalcedonian fathers believed they were rejecting. 
So it's as, as if they were talking past one another. They couldn't understand what the other person, what the other group was saying. So that whereas the Council of Chalcedon speaks of two natures in one person, the cops speak of one nature of the incarnate Son of God from two natures, human and divine. So here's the question. Which is proper? Which is theologically orthodox? Is it one nature in Christ or one person in Christ? And is it a difference that makes a difference? I dare say if we took a survey of those who call themselves Christians in America, if they understood what the discussion was, that would be a big achievement. But most of them would say that it doesn't make a difference. But to these people, it made a difference. And to those who understand the debate, it does make a difference. Now, in my presentation, I have a reflection on the Council of Nicaea because it was something very similar that took place at the Council of Nicaea. But for the sake of time, I'm going to have to bypass that. If you want to talk about that, we can. Is there a crucial difference between saying that Jesus Christ is two natures in one person, as Chalcedon did, and in saying that Jesus Christ has one nature, including both human and divine, as the Coptic Church says. Both groups readily profess that this is a crucial issue. And what could be more central to the Christian claim that Jesus is the Savior of the world than to define properly who Jesus Christ is. Without knowing who Jesus Christ is, we have no faith. We have no message. We have no church. And so that question that Jesus asked that day on the plains of Caesarea Philippi reverberates down to our day who do you say that I am? It seems that there's an impasse. And there was for 1,500 years. And now we need to take step number three to understand the beginnings of dialogue and agreement. There were attempts in the intervening centuries to have some conversations between the Catholic, the main Orthodox churches, and the Coptic Church, as well as the other Oriental Orthodox churches, but they seem not to come to fruition. Until in 1961, there were representatives of all the major Orthodox patriarchates that accepted the Chalcedonian Creed and the Coptic Church and they met on the island of Rhodes, just off the coast of Turkey. There, they tried to hash out an understanding. And it's still not clear to me whether they were successful at that. This was followed up three years later in Denmark in a theological consultation between major representatives of these different theological traditions. But the one that becomes most important happened in 19, 
73. When Pope Shenouda met with Pope Paul VI, and they together came up with a joint statement that I have quoted from in the outline. Here's what they said they agreed on. We confess that our Lord and God and Savior and King, Jesus Christ, is perfect God with respect to his divinity and perfect man with respect to his humanity. In him, his divinity is united with his humanity in a real, perfect union without mingling, without commixion, without confusion, without alteration, but also without division and without separation. Those are almost the exact words of the Council of Chalcedon. So did the Meophysites just give in and become Chalcedonians? Well, not exactly. But what they did is a lesson in human life and history. And that is, when they came together, they put aside for a moment their standard phrases. And they tried to listen more carefully to what the other side was saying. And when they talked, when they consulted, when they prayed together, they realized we're not as far apart as we thought we were. And so they came up with these five points of agreement that I've mentioned here that I'll read very quickly. They all saw Apollinarianism, Nestorianism, and Eutychianism as being a denial of the true humanity and divinity of Christ. And in keeping with the Council of Ephesus, they said that the humanity and the divinity united was from the moment of his conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Jesus Christ was truly and really a man. But he was just as much truly and really God. And that these were joined together by virtue of his personhood. He was the incarnate Logos of God. And this communication between his humanity and his divinity that we actually read about today, I presume that most of you are Roman Catholic, and therefore the gospel reading today was about the man who was deaf and mute. How did a man heal that man like that? Only because his divine nature communicated with his human nature through the person of Christ. It wasn't his divine nature or his human nature alone that healed the man. It was the person of Jesus Christ that healed him that day. But there was a communication between them that led to the healing not only of that man, but of all men. You see, this story is an amazing story when you think about it. Because what it means is that centuries of division have been lessened, if not eradicated, by development. Well, what was the development? When people had the goodwill to sit down and learn and to listen to one another.
And in doing so, they came to some astounding conclusions. You see, the unity of Christians is never beyond hope. And these agreements that took place in the late 20th century after 1,500 years of misunderstanding and division shows that greater mutual understanding is always possible. I have a question for you married couples out there today. As Andy Hickman mentioned, my wife and I have just celebrated this past Wednesday the birth of our 10th grandchild. We've been married 43 years. The first 10, it took me 10 years to understand my wife. <laughs> I'm glad I stuck with it. Because sometimes it takes a long time to hear what a person is saying. Sometimes it takes humbling oneself to be able to listen and to understand. But I can state without equivocation, as I did earlier tonight, that it is God's will for all Christians to be united in one spirit, one body, one faith, and the one love of Jesus Christ. This is the unity for which we should pray. This is the unity that we should work for and long for. It's not the unity of compromise, as modern Christianity conceives it. It's not the unity of acquiescence, but it's a unity based on the pursuit of truth in a spirit of love. And this desire for unity will draw us out of our lethargy and our indifference to Christians who are different than we are. And this accomplishment between the Coptic Church and the Roman Catholic Church is clear evidence that there's always hope for greater understanding between separated parties. This is the proof of what Christians should desire when Paul spoke of one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father of all. It should ever be our desire to see a greater unity of belief, of prayer, and of practice. And this, I think, is a call for us and to every Christian to take upon his lips the prayer of Jesus, Father, that they might be one, even as we are one. Thank you for coming out this evening. Thank you, Dr. Howell. Um, a couple notes for uh, further study here. We had a uh, talk recently, Father Anthony Messa gave a talk, The Oriental Christians uh, and the, the Story of the Coptic uh, Church, something like that. And the main title is Oriental Christians. And it talks uh, on this very subject, um, St. Athanasius and Shenouda and all these names that you were hearing. It'd be a great talk to um, follow up on. Okay, And then a second one, 
and we have uh, the CDs in the back. This was a three-part series by Professor Marshner. This was History of Heresy, a Study of the Early Councils of the Church, and uh, all three parts are in the back there in the CD racks. And there's a third talk that might be of interest to you, Hammer of the Heretics, St. Athanasius, and the Council of Nicaea. Um, one other last thing here is uh, th that theme of Christ, the uniqueness of Jesus being both God and man. There's an excellent book if you're looking for one to read. It's Everlasting Man, The Everlasting Man by uh, G.K. Chesterton. And the whole premise is that the world just doesn't know what in the world to do with this God-man, right? Um, and, and just absolutely wonderful exploration of it. So uh, The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton. Okay, questions and answers. Who's first? The one thing I noticed about the 1973 statement is it uses neither the word nature nor the word person. Of course, we still use the word person, and they're still using the word nature. Does it really make a difference which word we use? What makes a difference is the rejection of monophysitism. The monophysite theology would be that there is one and only one nature that is divine or human, like Eutychus said, where the human was absorbed into the divine, so that the human no longer really existed in Jesus. Uh, modern liberal Protestantism essentially either negates or absorbs his divinity into his humanity so that Jesus is just a man. And this has been the tension, more or less, throughout the history of the church. I do not know whether the church would say that it's permissible to use the word the one united nature of the Son of God. I suspect that given the conservative forces against change that's in human society, that the Coptic church would still speak of one nature, understood as the Miaphysite, not the Monophysite. I've not run this down, but I believe, if I recall, John Paul II visited Armenia when he was alive. And I seem to recall that he agreed with the patriarch, the Catholicos of the Armenian church, that, that they agreed basically on the same doctrine that Paul VI and Shenouda had agreed on. So that they saw that the, the differences weren't real. And this may be an ongoing area of, of theological exploration for people that are smarter than I. Yes. Building a little bit off the first gentleman's question, it seems almost that the, the disagreement is in some ways related to the understanding of nature or fusis. In, you, in your reading, is there any evidence that really it's, it's sort of a different interpretation of the, the mm. definition of Greek philosophical terminology and, and less 
the the theological reality to which the language is attempting to point? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And the bottom line is I don't know the answer to that. But I can speculate that there were times in Greek philosophical thought, I think there's at least two, maybe more, streams. One of them where nature, like Fusus and Prosopone, were almost considered to be synonymous, or very nearly so. Uh, so that nature and person didn't have much of a distinction. And then there were other times where, I think this is perhaps more Aristotle, but you may know better than me, where nature is distinct from person. And that's an interesting question to go back and to do some exegesis of, let's say, Cyril of Alexandria, maybe even of Nestorius' statements that are in the Council of Chalcedon, to see if they may be working with different definitions of phusis. It's a really good question because in other experiences of life, uh, for example, I did some study one time of uh, St. Robert Bellarmine's criticisms of John Calvin. And I read an article in which the scholar, I think, rightly contended that Bellarmine and Calvin were talking past one another because the same word had different meanings in their vocabularies. So the question is a really excellent one. And if I had nine more lives, I might pursue it. <laughs> Hi. Uh, I would like to ask you, with your statement that all Christian churches should join together as our Lord would like us to, form as a unity uh, under his guardianship. Was I brought up wrong when the Catholic Church told me, uh, or our teachers told me that we are one holy apostolic Catholic Church, the one true church uh, under our Lord Jesus Christ, who told St. Peter, he would to be the rock of the church mm -hmm. and uh, form the Catholic Church. This is really the first time I've been told to, you know, talk with other Christians. Rather, I've been sort of told, oh, th th this faith fell off uh, years ago, and this year the Lutherans this, you know, sure. the other Protestants this church. I've never been told to come together as one. In the doctrine that you were taught, they were right. In the attitude that it was, came from that, it was wrong. The doctrine is true that the, cat, that the church that is in union with the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, is the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. But those same four adjectives can rightly describe the churches that today we call Orthodox churches. They have a valid priesthood. They have valid patriarchs. They have valid priests. They are, we would say, in schism from us. And they would say that about us. Although some of them would also say we're heretics because of our doctrine of the Trinity and other things. I think the best way to understand it is we know where the church is. It is the people of God 
gathered together in adoration of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that does not mean that there are other Christians out there, that there's no one else out there that should not be a part. Let me use my own life as an example. I never fought till I was about 35 or 6 years old. I never thought about becoming Catholic because I believed that I believed the true faith. The Catholic Church was an error, so I thought. Until I began to investigate it more thoroughly, and I realized that even though I was asking the right questions, I had the wrong answers. And that in fact, the church that calls itself the Roman Catholic Church is the true church of Christ. So you weren't taught wrong insofar as the doctrine is, but if that led you or anyone to forget about other Christians and, you know, just sort of mentally consign them to the flames, that was wrong. Um, on the top of the second page, it says these six churches are not in union with any other Christian churches. So I would have thought that they would be Christian because they believe that, that Jesus is, is, is God. So I just want to be clear, do we not see them as Christians? Oh, no, no, oh, we, we do. do. Okay. What I mean by that is, in the same way that the patriarch of Constantinople is not in union with the Pope, they're both Christian, and they're both, in fact, ancient Christian, and they're about as close as you're going to get, but they're not in communion with one another. And by that I mean, as a practical example, if you go to Rome on June 29th at the Feast of St. Peter's and Paul, the celebration that's outside of St. Peter's there, the Patriarch of Constantinople always comes to that. But he doesn't celebrate with the Pope. And he doesn't receive communion. Because there still are barriers to communion. The underlying message of my talk tonight is that his presence means he has within him, as does the Pope, a deep, deep desire for Christian unity, and that that is God-given. That is something that needs to be nurtured and fostered. As a moment of personal illustration, how many of you know devout Protestant Christians? Do they love Jesus? Do you love them? Would you like to see them on a clearer and surer path to holiness? You probably, like me, would look at them and say, wow, they're already out holding me, you know? But nevertheless, do not for a moment keep the message of the Catholic Church away from them. By God's providence, I stumbled on it. And I can tell you that Protestantism, in many ways, as good as it is, does not come close to the graces that are in the Catholic sacraments. I'll illustrate it this way. In my 44 years as a Protestant, I knew many Christians who are some of the finest Christians I've ever met. 
I think of one particular Lutheran pastor that I knew. His youngest daughter was Down syndrome. And he truly was one of the finest Christians I've met. But I don't think I ever saw in my 44 years as a Protestant anyone who approaches the level of holiness that I have seen in some Catholics. And it's not because Catholics are better people. It's because they have access to a greater grace. And as they open their hearts to that, that grace flows into them and makes them saints. So the riches that are in the Catholic Church ought to be shared as widely as possible. And if you're even a superficial observer of our modern society, as I was saying to one of my Uber drivers today, he was taking me to Mass this morning, and I found out he was a Christian, and I said, I think our country desperately needs Jesus. I suspect some of you may agree with that. Is this the only dif major difference between us, or are there any other major differences between the Catholic Church and the Orthodox churches? No, there are major differences. Um, probably one of the greatest differences is the role and authority of the Pope or the Bishop of Rome. Now, we do need to understand, just like they call him Pope Shenouda, the word Pope just is, of course, il papa, right? means the father of the family. So the word papa was used of the bishops in the ancient church more than just the Church of Rome. But eventually, the Church of Rome became the sort of center and focus of the whole church. Now, I think it was there implicitly from the beginning. But the Orthodox Christians, that's Greek and Antiochian and Russian and so forth, they recognize the Pope as the patriarch of the West. But they say that he doesn't have universal jurisdiction over the whole church. So that, that is a, that's a key point. It needs to be you know, worked out. And that cannot be worked out by somebody who's a lay theologian like me. That has to be worked out at a level higher in the hierarchy of the church. But I think what we can do as lay people, whether theologians or, you know, mathematicians, doesn't matter, we can try to foster better understanding between Catholic and Orthodox Christians. Let me give you a couple of negative examples, but hopefully you'll see the corresponding positive. I have a dear friend. She is Greek Orthodox. She grew up in Greece, now lives in the United States. One time, in fact, the last time I was here, I came back and I said to her, oh, I'm so happy. I got to go to a Byzantine liturgy. And she says, what's a Byzantine liturgy? <laughs> and I said, it's the liturgy of your church, the Greek Orthodox Church. But she didn't know it by that name. Because in her mind, she's Greek Orthodox, that's the church, and yes, I know there's Christians out there, but I don't need to, you know, really find out about them. Here's another example. This past summer, I gave a talk out in Wichita. I was invited by an Orthodox man to give a talk with a Protestant and an Orthodox theologian. We gave three talks on the perspective of theosis or deification. 
and how it played out in the East and the West. There was a priest I was talking to a few weeks before as he was passing through my town, and we fell into conversation, and uh, he said, well, what are you going to talk about? And I said, well, I'm going to talk about, you know, theosis and how it was really articulated by St. Cyril of Alexandria as an Eastern father. And he said, well, I've never thought of Cyril of Alexandria, Alexandria as an Eastern father. After I picked my job off the floor, I simply kindly said, well, he did write in Greek. I mean, he's an Eastern father. There's no doubt about that. All right. So there's been, there's been this, this culture, this history, this difference where people don't understand one another. We don't even understand all the members of our own church. So for example, Holy Transfiguration, Melkite Greek Catholic Church, right? Many Roman Catholics will say, well, do you follow the Pope? Or do you believe in the real presence? Or things like that. Well, of course they do. They believe exactly what we believe about the faith. But they have a slightly different cultural tradition and maybe prayer emphasis that's different. So I'm, I'm saying, let's not give up any convictions. Let's just make sure our convictions are true. Let me give a final illustration. About 20 years ago, I was giving a talk in a Catholic church, I think it was in California, and I kept referring to the Greek New Testament. And a man afterwards asked me, why do you refer to the Greek New Testament and not to the Latin? And I said, well, because the New Testament was written in Greek. And he said, well, I was told in school it was written in Latin. I said, I'm sorry, no, it wasn't. Now, here's the point. We all have a mixture of true and false ideas running around in our heads. We have to sort out the false and live by the truth. And sometimes we can do that by listening to others who help us bounce our ideas off and they off us so that we can come to a further understanding of the truth. Now here's, I think, one of the most important points to get. When I said that toward the end of my talk about pursuing uh, the truth in love, about unity in truth and not acquiescence and compromise, Believe me, having been a Protestant minister, I studied the history of Protestantism. It's one long story of acquiescence and compromise. That's not the Catholic way. That's not the Orthodox way. We want unity, but we want unity with truth. We want unity in love that embraces the fullness of the Christian faith. Thank you so much, Dr. Hal. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.